0: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb,
1: and I'm Joe McCormick. Robert, were you in a band when you were in school? Not,
0: <laughs> not like a, not like a rock
1: band. I mean, like a school band.
0: School band is the only thing I was in. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I played trumpet for a while. Then I played French horn. Then I played just a little more trumpet, and uh, that was it.
1: Did you ever get good at your instruments? No, no, no. not really. But, same here. Yeah, i I played trumpet when I was in school, and I was like, I, I think I was probably a, a source of great amusement for like my <laughs> band teachers and stuff. They'd probably play
0: my tapes at home for their friends at parties. <laughs> I, I I was probably much in the same uh, uh, territory. I, I will say that tor- towards the very end, I was I ended up being in like a like the school jazz band. I guess it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. We, we played different types of mu- types of music. We played Chicago and stuff. Uh, And that was pretty fun. Like for just a a, a brief period of time, I saw the potential of playing music, playing an instrument and enjoying it at the same time.
1: It wasn't later until I picked up the guitar that I realized the thing about music is you don't have to be really good at your instrument to have fun playing, but you have to be good enough to play Mm -hmm. to have fun playing. And I think when I played trumpet, I never got there. I never even got to where I could really do it. Yeah. But anyway, when I was in school bands, I remember being there with uh, the kids in the room who played saxophones and they'd have to, you know, like learn all the fingerings and mess with the reeds and everything. And I remember thinking, looking at these instruments with, you know, my, my trumpet had 3 valve. Buttons on it and mm-hmm. or keys, whatever you call them. And, and the saxophone had so many, it had all these like lumps and wires and keys and stuff. And I thought, how could you ever learn all that? And how, why, why would you put this like brass alien parasite up against your body? It's so lumpy.
0: Uh, yeah. At the same time, though, I always thought the saxophone, the clarinet, uh, various other woodwinds, they they looked more organic, especially the saxophone, really, because mm-hmm. it has this. It's like it's coiling like some sort of a beast, and and it makes sense that you would utilize all of your fingers <laughs> in playing an instrument as opposed to our use of the, the trumpet uh, where you're just using the, the three or in the case of the French horn, you have one hand just sort of shoved up there for good measure. <laughs> that is right. You
1: play, Yeah. So when you play French horn, what is that for? What happens if you take your hand out of the hole?
0: Well, it helps you support the horn, uh, but, oh, okay. but also you can, you can sort of shape the sound a little bit with it.
1: Oh, I see. Yeah. But of course my view of the saxophone changed greatly when I grew up and I think that largely had to do with me learning to appreciate jazz. Like that I'd never really listened to jazz when I was a little kid. And, you know, once I heard... Uh, actual jazz music, or uh, you know, the stuff from the the middle of the twentieth century, then the saxophone kind
0: of made sense to me. I agree. Once you hear somebody that is a, a true master of the saxophone, as with any musical instrument, you 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 see what the deal is. You see why you hear why it exists. You know why it exists. Why it was invented. You know what what sort of hole it's filling in the human experience, if yeah. you will. At the same time, uh, there's nothing like hearing a, a, a terrible saxophone or <laughs> – you know, th- there's also th- – the saxophone I feel can be a difficult instrument if it's um, uh, playing in a, a genre that you have a little exposure to. Uh, uh, for instance, the, the more sp- – the spacier, more chaotic uh, versions of jazz – uh, I, I know recently you and I were on a work trip, and we had an early morning lift ride mm-hmm. to the airport, and uh, the the Lyft ri- driver was playing some very free form jazz, uh-huh. and uh, it's it's not something that like I I am acclimatized to, right? Uh, so is I, it Ornette I, Coleman or something maybe? Oh, I don't know. It was just very free form. It, okay. uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was kind of a psychedelic freak out uh, saxophone performance. Uh, But still, at the same time, I can appreciate that there is uh, there's great skill going into the performance.
1: Yeah. And at least to me, while saxophone sounds very like muscular and natural and real and the genius of it is Mm -hmm. realized in jazz, don't. I don't mean to sound pretentious start talking about the genius of <laughs> of music. Um there's also a way in which it's always been kind of funny to me especially like it, it's it, there like the saxophone solo in like a rock ballad oh, is yeah. always the funniest part. But people are into that. Like do you remember in the recent stuff to blow your mind episode where we talked about the Russian born artists and comedians Komar and Melamid and they oh, yes. they did this thing where they used market research to, to determine all of the elements that people like the most and the least in music. And then they made a most hated song and a most wanted song. Mm-hmm. And the most wanted song had things, like, it sounded kind of like a combination of like like an eighties or nineties R and B song, but also kind of Springsteen-y. It had like a, you know, like working class people with humble ambition and dreams and like saxophone in it. The saxophone was what people wanted.
0: Ha. That's 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 wonderful. I mean, it it, it does make me think now that you mentioned the nineteen eighties, like two kind of extremes of uh, of, of saxophone player. Mm-hmm. On one hand, um, I, I think of Bruce Springsteen in the e, in the E Street Band. Yeah, uh, and the original sax player, uh, uh, Clarence Clemens, who lived uh, 1942, uh, passed away in 2011. He was like really tall, wasn't he? Oh yeah, he was a giant. I mean, he. I think he was like 6'5", but mm-hmm. I, I seem to recall Bruce Springsteen himself as maybe a shorter gentleman, okay. so you know he seemed even more gigantic uh, up there on the stage uh, playing the sax. But then I also think to the 1987 film The Lost Boys. Okay, I knew you were going here. Yeah, you know which scene I'm talking about,
1: right? Well, yeah, there's a scene where they uh, the characters just go out to a, what, it's a big party by the beach or something, mm-hmm. and there's a band playing, and there is just the most intense, oiled-up, <laughs> Muscle wrestle guy ever playing a saxophone solo?
0: Yeah, and it's one of these things that for the longest, I just without it researching it, I just assumed this is just some bodybuilder. And they said, "Hey, gyrate with this saxophone, and we'll we'll put we'll play something over it." Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, uh, that gentleman in the Lost Boys is uh, Tim Capello, who was and still is an actual saxophonist in addition to a bodybuilder. <laughs> And I, and I don't mean that he could just play it well enough to sort of, you know, do the scene. No, he played on Peter Gabriel's second album uh, and toured with him, uh, p- particularly the tracks Perspective and Home Sweet Home. He played with various other people, played with uh, um, uh, Tina Turner, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was a, this guy was a legit saxophone player who just happened to be a bodybuilder as well.
1: His – Agent must have like choked on his coffee when he saw the casting call go out for
0: that. Like need a, need oiled up bodybuilder who is expert at saxophone. He's your man. He's apparently still your man. He's still uh, active today. And on the other uh, – another example sort of like the ridiculousness of the sax. Uh, I would say I can't help but think of Bill Clinton's uh, sax solo on the Arsenio Hall show.
1: Oh, yeah. That was – I don't remember that from the time. But I know that's the thing people talk about now. Like Bill Clinton and the sax.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it, um, it I, I did it
1: show he was cool. Is that I what think it was? That was the
0: intended message. He was a presidential candidate at the uh-huh. time. And uh, yeah, he goes on there and he's, he's, you know, ripping it out on, on the sacks. The crazy thing about it, though, is uh, it's kind of embedded in my mind from just being on TV when I was a kid. Uh, but it also seems to have become just a, uh, like just a part of the American saxophone image mm. uh, abroad. Even um, a, a couple of years ago, I was looking into this this, this interesting scenario where, when you uh, look at at re- representations of Santa Claus in China, Santa Claus will often have a saxophone. Huh. And uh, this was, I believe, the first person to really get into this was journalist Max Fisher, who um, at the time he was writing for the Washington Post. This was twenty twelve. And, um, and he was saying, hey, well, what, he looked into the situation. Why are there all these Santa Clauses with saxophones? What does it mean? And he would ask people about it and they would say, I don't know. Santa just has a saxophone. Um, and uh, so I, I looked into it a little bit. I, uh, I ended up uh, chatting with Beijing-based uh, journalist uh, Helen Gao. And, um, and, and this was in 2017. And the short version, the short explanation that most people tend to, uh, to gravitate toward here is that American Santa um, – kind of took up this American instrument in a fusion of American symbols during the 1980s. This was the time when Santa Claus was introduced as a Western concept uh, into uh, Chinese popular culture. And Mm. he ended up just bringing the saxophone as well.
1: Okay, so it's kind of like putting a McDonald's takeout bag in his hand. It's just like this is part of
0: American culture. Let's give him an American instrument. And so it might lead some people to think like I kind of – I, without looking into it, I kind of just uh, thought of the saxophone. Yes, as a very American instrument. It's a oh, part totally. Of, it's a part of jazz. It's a part of part of the you know the uh, the, the the blues. It's a part of uh, Bruce Springsteen. What could be more American than these examples of our musical heritage? And yet, it is not an American invention, not at all.
1: No, rather, it is an 1840s or maybe as early as 1830s creation by the Belgian-born French
0: inventor and musician. Adolf Sachs. Right. And and it's not even necessarily one instrument. We keep talking about the saxophone and we'll keep talking about the saxophone. Mm-hmm. But uh, on June 28, 1846, uh, Adolf Sachs uh, applied for patents on 14 different types of saxophone. And that's just the date of the patent. As we'll discuss, he, uh, you know, he he developed and invented it earlier than that.
1: Yeah. Now, despite how many he applied for patents for at this at this time, there are really only a few varieties of saxophone that are in common use today. If you just think of a saxophone, mm-hmm. what you're probably thinking of is like an alto saxophone or maybe a tenor saxophone.
0: But then there are also soprano saxophones, there's baritone saxophone, and then there are a lot of... Uh, uh, later riffs on the saxophone concept. There are mm. other experimental saxophones, and we'll get into some of these as we uh, continue the episode.
1: All right. Well, maybe first of all, we should look at what came before the saxophone.
0: Yeah. So obviously there was there were there, were, there was a lot of history before the saxophone, mm-hmm. and before the saxophone, we we had woodwind instruments and we had brass instruments. Uh, the saxophone is interesting in that it's kind of a a hybrid that bridges these two families. Yeah. Now, not to get too bogged down in ancient history here, though I'd love to come back and discuss more musical instruments in the future. Yeah. But uh, horns, you know, we've had horn- shell and bone instruments uh, of this uh, type uh, for a very long time. Some of our earliest models of musical instrument technology involve blowing a horn of some kind, uh, usually adapted from something you know that occurs naturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in them we see you know the basic technologies that would evolve into uh, woodwind and brass as well. So it's it's all an evolution of materials of design and engineering. As for brass itself, uh, as a as a as the material for this instrument, I've read that the trumpet is the oldest brass instrument, dating back to roughly uh, uh, fifteen hundred BCE.
1: Oh, I think that's where the uh, trumpet that I used in in my school days came from. Oh
0: yes, yeah. yeah.
1: Yes, it was quite elderly and it, uh, you know, I, I often wondered, okay, so I'm like breathing through this thing. There's an inevitable amount of when you're blowing through and taking a breath, you're going to suck sort of some air through the trumpet as well. Mm-hmm. And there just had to be amazing undiscovered cultures of mold and m- s- stuff in there. Sometimes you'd open the spit valves and, I, oh, I don't want to gross everybody out too bad. But. No, no, but
0: even as you're touching on it, I can kind of, you know, in the way that you interact with with, uh, with scent memories, uh, I can sort of recall that, uh, that funky brass odor. Yes.
1: <laughs> this, this combination of like the smell of the metal, I don't know if that's really the metal or or if it's just imagined, but also of the oil you would use to yes, oil the, the keys oil. on the valves, so some kind of gross oil. When you got it in your mouth, it was not pleasant. And also just the
0: smell of life that dwells in moist shadow. The taint of the unwashed <laughs> horn. So uh, to be clear here, the saxophone – is a woodwind instrument Mm -hmm. that is just made of brass Uh it takes the easy to play single reed mouthpiece that you would find in a clarinet for example and it melds it with the easy fingering of large woodwinds and of, and, of course, it is made of brass. That's material. It depends on oscillating uh, reed for its sound, not buzzing lips, uh, which you would find in a, in, a, in, a, in a brass mouthpiece such as with right. the trumpet or the yeah. French horn. With those, you kind of have to go. Brr, yeah. Brr, brr. It's a buzzing. I yeah. <laughs> uh, hope you enjoyed that, folks. <laughs> so, yes, this is, a, this is a pure woodwind in this regard. Uh, however, it's worth noting that the very first saxophone was was all wood. It, it was only later that he made the switch to brass. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll come back to uh, kind of some of the curious uh, trivia about this uh, as we proceed. Well, let's take a look at old Adolf Sax himself. So I've been
1: reading a book called The Cambridge Companion to the Saxophone, edited by Richard Ingham uh, from Cambridge University Press, 1998. And it, ha- it has some excellent chapters, uh, especially about the, the the inventor of the saxophone himself, chapter by an author named Thomas Lilly. But also the book starts with a, uh, a, a quote from a poem from the Scottish poet Douglas Dunn called An Address to Adolph Sax in Heaven. <laughs> and it's too good not to read this. Oh, yes. here, here we go. So – From saxophone quartets by Strauss on days off from the opera house or works by Milhaud and Ravel or Villa Lobos in Brazil to Lester leaping in possessed by his brass belled iconoclast, the sound we hear is yours, Adolf. Posterity, it's howling wolf, time salivating on a reed and fingering at breakneck speed.
0: I like that. It almost has kind of a beat quality to it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who is this guy who's uh, being addressed in heaven here? Obviously, you can tell from the poem that he's dead, and you can probably guess that since he invented the saxophone, he would pretty much have to be dead unless, I don't know, he's a multi— Centenarian,
0: Right. He, he lives on in the instrument. But uh, yes, uh, he died in 1894. He was born in 1814. He was the first of 11 children born to uh, a musical instrument maker in uh, Dinan, in what is now Belgium. His parents were not only instrument makers, but they were also innovators uh, of, um, in their own right, altering designs and, uh, and of course, just playing music. So he was born into a family that was not only musically literate, but but very versed in the technology of musical instruments.
1: Yeah, Adolf's father, Charles Sachs, was at one point made the official instrument maker to the court of the Netherlands. And uh, so Charles created an alternative design of the horn, the Cor Omnitonique which I have an image of here. I went and fetched from a, uh, an image at the Met Museum. Ain't she a beaut? Th- this is good. Now, Robert, you played the French horn, but this is not what you played.
0: No, this is, this is French horn-esque in its uh, overall design, but there, there, there's, there are diff- additional whirls in there. It, it looks like the entrails of a brass angel.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's got a valve that you can sort of pump in and out, maybe sort of like
0: a trombone handle, I think. Yeah, this was no rough horn. You can look at this and tell, like this, this is something that was created by a true craftsman. Beautiful, beautiful metal guts, <laughs> and uh, and so Sachs, uh, Adolf Sachs, grew up amid these 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 brass guts. According to um, a text I was reading, Leon uh, Kaczynski's Adolf Sachs and His Saxophone, uh, Sachs could drill a clarinet's holes and bend a horn by the age of six. So he simply just grew up in the world of instrument crafting and music and he learned to play clarinet and flute and was quite skilled at this as well. Like, like no mere amateur uh, as a musician uh, at all. Yeah, it was
1: said that he could have been a renowned clarinetist if he wanted, like if he'd pursued that mm-hmm. path instead. But when he, he when he would play his instruments, he would keep noticing chances for improvements to the design of the instrument itself and then return to the workshop. And so he began to become known for his skill at instrument making uh, with his father Charles, according to the chapter by Thomas Lillet, uh, with his father Charles primarily churning out the known instruments for the family to sell and Adolphe focusing more and more on experimenting with new forms and designs.
0: Yeah, he entered his own uh, handcrafted flutes and clarinets in contests by the age of 15, and he created his own take on the ba- the bass uh, clarinet at age 20.
1: Yeah, Lillet's chapter tells the story of Sax's entry at the Brussels Exhibition of 1841, uh, and so this was this instrument show and contest that Sachs entered with a handful of clarinets and according to Sax's friend uh, George Kastner an early model of the saxophone was there so according to Kastner's version of the story this would have been the public debut of the saxophone except for the unfortunate twist of fate that the new instrument quote was sent flying with a kick by an unknown person at a time when the inventor Adolf Sax was away oh man so already making enemies (laughs) even in 1841 somebody just punts your saxophone Uh, and according to The judges at this contest recommended Sachs for the gold medal, but the central jury rejected their recommendation because they said Sachs was too young to win the top prize. And Sachs reportedly commented on this, quote, if I am too young for the gold medal, I am too old for the silver.
0: Oh, man. This is already just a great snapshot of, uh, of Sachs. Yeah. You know, in reading his uh, in, from his biographies, it becomes pretty clear. Like that he's one of these these individuals who creates something that's going to live on mm-hmm. uh, um, after he's gone, but he himself is uh, is not really going to have a, a real bite of that success.
1: Yeah, he clearly was a very talented, very smart person, but
0: also just he had a lot of troubles. Yeah, some of these were outside of his control, but then a number of them also seem to be kind of self-inflicted. Yeah, and and this he's very much a study in like what kind of uh, what kind of determination is sometimes uh, involved in an inventor's mindset, you know, uh, and, and how might that determination uh, run at odds with polite society. But what were all the stories about how he like almost perished repeatedly as a child? Oh, yeah. According to Adolf Sachs and his saxophone, um, uh, his mother referred to him as, quote, Little Sachs, the ghost. <laughs> Based on the number of times he almost died. So he managed to survive a three story fall, uh, uh, an incident where he swallowed uh, uh, vitriolized water and a pin at age three. Ooh. Gunpowder explosion burns, a fall into a cast iron frying pan. How do you fall into one?
1: Maybe he was um, very small at the time
0: maybe small at the time yeah <laughs> or you know it's unclear if, like maybe just part of him fell oh, into it oh i see uh, <laughs> uh, also poisonings and asphy- asphyxiations due to varnished items left lying in his bedroom at night what uh, I, I'm unclear if that is, you know, due to ongoing projects that his parents were working on, or stuff that he was working on. Because clearly, from a very early age, he was engaging in these sort of in this sort of activity.
1: Well, I think before his parents worked on musical instruments, they worked on uh, furniture, like ah. cabinets. They were cabinet makers, and so it
0: could be varnishing of, of cabinet parts. There you go. And once he was hit, in the, hit on the head by a, a cobblestone and fell into a river. Dang. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a minor miracle that he even lived to adulthood uh, based on these stories. And then his life in Paris as an adult seems just consumed by rivalries with various enemies. Yep. At least one of which culminated in a musical duel. <laughs> Uh, and then there were all these various betrayals as well. So um, uh, Koczynski wrote that he quote had exceptional gifts for the gentle art of making enemies. So you're left with this this vision of of a difficult, a very difficult but determined and talented man. Um, and he did find some key patrons and supporters. You know, that, sometimes in very high places. Yeah, yeah. Like he, there was almost like st- when he did make friends, he could make really influential friends. Uh, But even in his successes, such as with the saxophone, he still had to fight ceaseless battles against those who would imitate and and or outright steal his craft.
1: Yeah. So we should get to more on that because after this Brussels exhibition in 1841, Saxe moved to Paris and he continued his work there. This was around 1842. And at the time, a writer named Hector Berlioz wrote an article about Saxe's arrival, which included the following. This is cited in Lillet's chapter. Quote, he is a man of penetrating mind, lucid, tenacious, with a perseverance against all trials, and great skill. He is at the same time a calculator, acoustician, and is necessary also a smelter, turner, and engraver. He can think and act. He invents and accomplishes. So obviously, Sachs made he found it. Uh, he he found a way of making very positive impressions on some people. Mm-hmm. And once in Paris, Sachs made friends with big players in the music world and gave public performances with his instruments. But he also made enemies very quickly, especially among the other instrument makers of Paris. People who saw in Sachs a threat to their business.
0: Yeah, who would have thought that uh, the, the, the that this was such a vicious world? Yeah, uh, you know the the world of, uh, of 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 instrument makers in in Paris.
1: Oh, it's about to get vicious in ways <laughs> that you, you will be shocked by. So L- Lillet quotes a letter written by Hector Berlioz in October of eighteen forty three. Quote. It is scarcely to be believed that this gifted young artist should be finding it difficult to maintain his position and make a career in Paris. The persecutions he suffers are worthy of the Middle Ages and recall the antics of the enemies of Benvenuto, the Florentine sculptor. They lure away his workmen, steal his designs, accuse him of insanity, (laughs) and bring legal proceedings against him. Such is the hatred inventors inspire in rivals who are incapable of inventing anything themselves. Oh man! So, wh- what are some examples of how they work to get against him? There, there are several in this book. Uh, so, some of Sax's enemies tried to undercut him by using their influence in the music world to make sure Sax's instruments, for example, his bass clarinet, were not accepted in orchestras. Right? So they would they would have influence over somebody in in some big influential orchestra say like the lead clarinetist in some Paris orchestra who would then say, you know, if you let instruments invented by Adolf Sachs into this orchestra, I will walk out. I will not play with you anymore.
0: Yeah, I was reading about some of these in the, in the other text uh, where people were like, yeah, I'm not playing an Adolf Sachs instrument. Uh, <laughs> it's just hard to yeah. – it's really it, – it's very – it's difficult, I think, for us to really imagine this kind of world because I know for all of my life, I kind of thought of, you know, instruments are kind of fixed. Yeah. You know, they're, they're all – Old, well-established instruments. Like the newest instrument is going to be like the you know, an electric guitar or yeah. whatnot.
1: But but no, new inven- new instruments are being invented all the time. I mean, now one thing that does come into become an issue here is that when a new instrument is invented, it doesn't yet have like compositions written specifically with it in mind right Uh, so if you're playing older compositions for an orchestra they're probably they're
0: not going to have a saxophone part written in them right and then of course not every instrument has a lot of versatility like obviously the saxophone has quite a bit of versatility but on the other hand something like the theremin has limited usage yeah in in music even when it is uh, it's, it's played exceptionally well
1: yeah but even if the these orchestras were considering incorporating say a bass clarinet of uh, of, uh, sax's design or a saxophone or a sax horn, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, any of the stuff he put together, there would be ways that these rival instrument makers could try to shut that down and prevent it from happening. Also, when the French government was considering adopting some of Sachs's instruments uh, for the reform of its military ensembles, because apparently at the time, uh, the French government considered the, the, the old sort of decrepit state of their, their military marching bands to be an embarrassment. They needed new military music to show off, which is kind of a funny thing to –
0: consider that they'd be super concerned about. But. Right, that this would be an expression of your military prowess in yeah. a sense. Yeah, like I guess it's a different time. Yeah, but then again, it is technology. And that's one thing that, is, that, that we shouldn't overlook. Like like we're talking about musical technology.
1: Yeah. Uh, so th- this was going on. Uh, there was a—so the French government was considering adopting some of Saxe's instruments for their for their military use. And the, then opposition to Sachs really intensified. The rival instrument makers, they formed this association uh, that was basically just organized to attack Sachs and shut him down. And they tried to sue him to prevent him from getting a patent on the saxophone. One of the tactics they tried is downright diabolical. So in, uh, I'm going to quote here from Lille's chapter, quote, In another tactic, several saxophones were purchased and sent to other countries. Sax's identification was removed and the instruments were then re-engraved to indicate foreign manufacture. Right? So the idea is to say, oh, no, saxophone. I'm calling him saxophone. Sax did not invent the saxophone. There are already ones being made by other people over here beforehand.
0: Oh, man. So they're just straight up falsifying evidence to support this idea that he stole the saxophone design from other countries.
1: Right. But of course, uh, fortunately, the, the Lillet says that these forgeries were poorly executed and quickly revealed as a ruse. But it just did not stop here. Uh, from the late 1840s on through the rest of his life, it seems Sachs was just plagued with money troubles and constant lawsuits. His biography at this point really just reads mostly as one miserable-sounding court case or bankruptcy threat after another, and he eventually died in 1894.
0: In poverty, I believe.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, But I think we should turn back to the 1840s to look at the invention of the saxophone in particular, but maybe first we'll take a
0: break. All right, we're back, and we're discussing the saxophone.
1: So, sax was first granted a patent for the saxophone on June 22nd, 1846. And getting this patent, as we mentioned earlier, turned out to be difficult due to the intentional sabotage of an association of rival musical instrument makers, uh, which we discussed a bit earlier. Sort of
0: a musical legion of doom.
1: Yeah. Uh, So, according to this chapter by Thomas Lilley, another one of the challenges that sax's rivals put in his way was, quote, the contention that because the saxophone had been performed formed before a large public audience during the contest on the Champ de mars it was invalid for patent. <laughs> so, Sachs' response to this challenge was pretty awesome. He came back with a challenge in return. He withdrew his patent request and dared his the, the plaintiffs to build a saxophone of their own <laughs> without the use of his design specs, and they were unable to do it. So, a little less than a year later, Sachs refiled and got his patent application granted. So... Now he's got the thing patented. But as we've talked about, obviously Sachs didn't invent it in 1846. He'd been working on this for a while. Uh, We Remember the story from 1841 with the exhibition in Brussels where at least according to Kastner, uh, he had a a saxophone then before somebody came along and punted it. But maybe a way of coming at this issue is to, to think about what makes the saxophone special. Like what is it about this instrument that needed to be invented? Uh, so, the word saxophone means literally either sound of sax or voice of sax. Okay. I don't know which one is better. I guess voice of sax is better. The, the Greek phonae could mean sound or voice, of, often voice. And I like that it's kind of creepy to think about the voice of the inventor coming and speaking through the brass tube more than a century after he dies.
0: It would have been a great album title for him, you know, uh-huh. voice of sax, sound <laughs> of sax.
1: Sax from the heart of space. <laughs>
0: Now, the saxophone has 19 keys, Mm -hmm. and it slightly resembles the offaclide, which is a brass instrument that was invented earlier that century in France.
1: Yes, and uh, Lily lists a number of instruments that have been offered as design ancestors to the saxophone. So, a few of these include a, quote, Argentine instrument, quote, made of a cow's horn whose tip is shaped to resemble a single reed mouthpiece with a thin reed of bone bound by a silk thread, Uh, Another one might be the alto fagato, which is a sort of high register bassoon. I think that name just means high bassoon. Mm -hmm. And then the Hungarian tarot gato, which is a canonical boar woodwind.
0: You know, I'm going to mention this later in the episode as well, but – Anyone who's intrigued by the history of, of musical instruments, mm. I highly recommend the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it, amazing museum, well worth the price of admission. They have musical instruments from all over the world. Uh, you just can stroll from continent to continent and just wow yourself with how many different – Designs there are uh, th- that have a lot in common. Like you know, they're, they're string instruments from all over the world, and in a, in a very simple way, they are all doing the same thing. But yet, the materials involved, the design involved, the the artistry involved, this the sort of music that is then created with the instrument uh, varies so much. Uh, and certainly, you see plenty of different uh, instruments at that museum that are made uh, from parts of an animal.
1: Was going there what made you want to do this episode on the saxophone?
0: I think it did. It did yeah. It did remind me of, of the saxophone as being an example of, like, here's a musical instrument that, f- first of all, has a very clear-cut inventor. Yeah. Uh, but also— With his name on it. With his name on it. Uh, and yet, at the same time, it does tie into the, this this larger history of, of musical instrument technology.
1: Right. Well, given that it was part of this larger history, I guess we need to ask the question again, what makes the saxophone special? Like, what was— Adolf Sachs trying to do when he made it. Uh, Some sources claim that he sort of discovered the design by accident. Sachs' son, Adolf Eduard, disputes this. Uh, A likely reason for its creation was that Sachs wanted to create a version of the clarinet that would overblow in octaves rather than in twelfths. Now, I I didn't know what this meant when I first read it, so I had to go read about this and figure out what, what this is. As best as I understand... Overblowing is when you change the note being played on a wind instrument without changing the fingering, Hmm. uh, but simply by altering the airflow. So maybe like blowing harder or changing the position of the mouth or whatever. So you can hold a fingering, change what you're doing with your mouth and your lungs – and cause the sound produced by the instrument to jump up to a higher pitch. And on the saxophone, what makes the saxophone special is that this interval where the note jumps up to is a perfect octave, essentially the same note, one octave up, which is a useful thing. This isn't the case on other instruments. Like on a clarinet, it uh, when you overblow, it tends to jump up by like a twelfth hmm. or something, not a perfect octave. And the fact that the saxophone can overblow into a perfect octave – is musically useful. It's useful to the player. It can be pleasing. So there's a lot of speculation that this was the purpose of why why Sax created this in the first place. It was to have an instrument that could do this. But we don't know for sure exactly why the saxophone was created.
0: Yeah, Adolf Sax never uh, uh, claimed to have been visited by a muscular angel uh, playing <laughs> this instrument. Right. Right. Uh, you know.
1: I also oh, oh! Re- I just had the perfect idea. Now, what I know has to be the case is uh, that guy in the Lost Boys. Mm -hmm. You know, muscle guys are often oiled up. This guy was oiled up with, with like the trumpet valve key oil.
0: Oh, of course. <laughs> now, uh, I've also read that the saxophone bridges the gap between the brass section and the woodwinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I guess that, that explanation kind of, you know, it also plays with this idea that it is a fusion of the two design elements. Uh, but the idea is that it also – it creates a tonal balance between the two. It's a versatile instrument with a, quote, middle voice. yeah and the saxophone is also said to have the sound closest to the human voice making it an obvious uh, choice for you know ear pleasing musical solos
1: yeah thomas lilly's chapter in in the cambridge companion he, he writes about how the saxophone is sometimes thought of as a singing instrument. It's got the like the range and versatility of a human voice, quote, capable of producing guttural sounds and fine-spun spun eloquence, of rabble-rousing and of inspiring. And he, so he says like the singing quality of the saxophone made it really well-suited especially to become part of – not like orchestral music, but of jazz and popular music, which tended to evolve from originally a cappella forms. That, like, you know, jazz and popular music grew out of stuff like blues and work songs and folk songs that were sung before they were anything else. Oh,
0: wow. So, in a way, it's almost like a an instrument of translation from purely vocal music into uh, instrumental music. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, this again, this play, this this definitely lines up with this feeling that the saxophone is very organic. Yeah, and 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 also probably plays up to the the sensual aspects of the saxophone. that are again uh, personified in this this vision of the muscular saxophone player mm-hmm. uh, engaging in his solo. <laughs> Uh, it, I should also, uh, as long as we're talking about materials uh, and all, I should point out that the flute is the only other, uh, you know, um, uh, famous metal woodwind instrument. Uh, however, the flute was originally crafted from wood and is still sometimes crafted from wood today.
1: I think they're, e- they're even bone flutes, right? Oh, yeah. yeah flute
0: yeah. technology yeah,
1: goes back <laughs> a long way. Now, according to the author Don Ashton, one of the things that makes the saxophone unique and appealing is that it's sort of a friendly instrument to pick up like that it, it has acoustical properties that make it uh, e- easy to learn and and uh, it is an amiable, object to produce sound. Ashton writes, quote, relative to other woodwind instruments, the saxophone has a large bore, and this is of great significance to many aspects of its sound capabilities and player response. The use of a conical tube renders the sound wave richly harmonic, yet the fingering system rivals that of the flute in simplicity. In common with other large bore instruments, the fundamentals are easily formed, yet the reduction in bore towards the mouthpiece facilitates both an evenness of timber throughout the instrument and the extension of the two-and-a-half octave normal range. Uh, now, of course, experienced players now often take the instrument beyond that normal range, but th- that was sort of like the range at which it was originally said that the instrument was meant to be played.
0: So it kind of hits this perfect uh, uh, balance point. You know, it's, it's an instrument that's easy to pick up, mm-hmm. but yet it rewards the, uh, the the musician who invests a great deal of time and energy into it
1: exactly yeah and because it it's characterized as, as seeming to to like grow so organically from what the the musician is able to do you can take it in a lot of re- directions the way you can take your voice in a lot of directions mm-hmm.
0: all right well on that note we're going to take one more break when we come back we're going to discuss the legacy of the saxophone all right we're
1: back now, the saxophone's impact on music and culture was, of course, enormous. Uh, Lily notes that it spread really quickly to other countries uh, soon after its debut in Paris in the 1840s. Within the next few decades, it was appearing all around the world. There were several early saxophonists, uh, names like uh, Louis Adolphe Mayur, Henri Wuy, and Suaye, uh, who made the instrument popular abroad with their performing tours. And early on, a lot of listeners. This is kind of funny now uh, given, I don't know, all the – like the the saxy Santa and the muscle guy and all that. But early listeners reported being awed by the beauty of the sound produced by the saxophone. Hmm. Like after an early demonstration by sax in 1842 in Paris, an author named Escudier wrote in La France Musicale uh, that the instrument had this amazing sound. Quote, Remarkable intensity and quality of sound. You cannot imagine the beauty of sound and the quality of the notes.
0: It makes me wonder if, to a large extent, we're we're just desensitized to the the saxophone today. I mean, yeah, we're just so used to hearing it in commercials and recordings. In many cities, you walk down the street and you hear the saxophone. If you attend a parade, you see people marching, hear people marching with the saxophone. Yeah, uh,
1: I mean, just think about the quality of a, a you know a sort of like mid level. Uh, middle range tone produced by the saxophone, it is remarkably like, it it feels very like thick and deep and rich and Mm -hmm. full full of uh, little harmonics and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think I can hear what they're saying. I've just heard it so many times now. What if, what if I could hear a saxophone for the first time? Another one. So that last uh, quote uh, was cited in Lillet. Here's another one cited in Lillet. Again, this one from that guy, uh, Georges Kastner, who wrote in 1844 about the saxophone, quote, the nobility and beauty of its timber. I cannot say enough times. The saxophone is called to the highest destiny by the beauty of its timber. Wow. Yeah, these guys are losing their minds about a yeah. saxophone.
0: Like it's clearly scratching an itch that uh, th- that other instruments were not really capable of dealing with. You know, it's it's yeah. delivering a new experience.
1: Yeah, and of course, not everyone would always feel this way. Uh, on on top of so, you had the rivals of sax who opposed the saxophone for pure business reasons. You know, they just wanted to take him down. Uh, but there have been people who hated it for other reasons. Of course, one really sad fact in its history is that. Probably because it would reach its most powerful and brilliant use later on in, like, African-American jazz music, racists have often targeted the saxophone. Mm -hmm. Like, no surprise here, but the Nazis hated the saxophone. Um, There's an article in 2012 uh, in The Atlantic by J.J. Gould about this, citing – the writings of the uh, Czech dissident literary figure Josef Skvorecki and uh, the Nazis often opposed jazz music. He, he talks about how uh, they considered the saxophone to be linked to uh, to like African music and they banned it. They highly regulated it in Germany and some occupied territories uh, and in one of his books, uh, Skvorecki, relays a set of regulations issued by a Nazi officer named Golighter in occupied Czechoslovakia. And some of these rules are just bizarrely specific, like, quote, Pieces in Foxtrot Rhythm, so-called swing, are not to exceed 20 percent of the repertoires of light orchestras and dance bands. (laughs) Uh, Like so tightly regulating the specific musical qualities of what kind of music can be played and
0: when. Literal music Nazis.
1: Yes. Yes. And uh, like banning vocal improvisation, you know, like scat singing. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, But then also one of the things that, that is in this list of prohibitions is, quote, All light orchestras and dance bands are advised to restrict the use of saxophones of all keys and to substitute for them the violin cello, the viola, or possibly a suitable folk instrument. Uh, and so a lot of these rules explicitly cite racial resentment as their motivation, saying that music should not sound Jewish or African. Uh, it's insanity. And and Skvorecki wrote that uh, jazz was opposed by the authorities of the Soviet Union as well. Uh, he wrote, Jazz was a sharp thorn in the sides of the power-hungry men from Hitler to Brezhnev who successfully ruled in my native land.
0: I have to say, I think I'm, I'm even more inclined to like jazz now that I know that it was, you know, getting under the skin of uh, of, of prominent Nazis and giving them the willies.
1: Right. Well, I mean, you can you can tell apart from their racial hatred, there's mm-hmm. also, there's a spirit of creativity and freedom in it that is anathema to the totalitarian authoritarian spirit, you know, that, that, that hates that kind of creativity. Yeah. And of course I think many people would truly agree that like jazz is one of the the truest and most powerful realizations of what the saxophone was capable of with you know artists like Charlie Parker and John Coltrane.
0: Yeah, artists that really like took that organic nature that we've been talking about and just let like let that balloon out. Yeah. Let that be the defining aspect of the performance.
1: Now, despite the fact that I think most people today would really associate the saxophone with jazz more than anything else, uh, it actually wasn't a commonly used instrument in the very earliest days of jazz and only became a regular addition to jazz ensembles and compositions roughly, I think, in the time after World War I, uh, like its earliest widespread use in the uh, 19th and early 20th centuries was in bands. You would know, think like John Philip Sousa type mm. music, like marches and that, that kind of thing. And in the 1920s, the popularity of it skyrocketed. It surged in America with the saxophone craze.
0: Now, I'd take, like to take a few minutes here to talk about self-playing saxophones. Oh, you. <laughs> I like how you begin this, like a
1: like now. A word from our sponsor. Well, uh,
0: uh, I because I have to. I feel like I have to sort of um, uh, set it apart from what we've been talking about because the idea we've talked about how organic it is and mm-hmm. it's you know it's this expression of the human spirit. So it seems kind of <laughs> <grotesque> <laughs> you can also in a sense.
1: also make it a soulless mechanical thing.
0: Yeah, it it seems like an exercise in tyranny to do that, doesn't it? But um, uh, but there there were uh, self playing saxophones and I'd look I'd like to. To come back and discuss self-playing musical instrument technology in the future, mm-hmm. uh, because because there is quite a lot to cover. Uh, the, again, the the fabulous Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix, Arizona, they have an entire room dedicated to everything from player pianos to musical boxes uh, to automated oompa bands, and uh, and of course the self-playing sax. Wow. So uh, the Musical Instrument Museum, they identify the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries as the golden age of mechanical music. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of efforts at this point to just to, to, to take the, uh, the automation technology and apply it to just about anything. And, we, and this is where we see the automatic saxophone. Now, I don't think this qualifies as a true sax. But you had this uh, – essentially a toy, a toy instrument known as the uh, playa sax roll-operated musical instrument. Oh, boy. And uh, it was a 1930s invention patented by Henry O. uh, Drottning. And it was yeah it was mainly intended for amusement. It was something of a of a toy. It looks like a saxophone wearing a jetpack. Yeah, like a simplified saxophone. It looks like a a toy saxophone. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, and this is uh, some information. This is from the patent which is via basicSax.info and Google Patents. Okay. Quote, the sax measures 12 inches with a a two and three-fourths inch diameter horn. The music rolls, and these, of course, uh, we're talking about rolls of paper Mm -hmm. uh, that contain the information. Uh, These music rolls are perforated and measure about 4.25 inches wide. The rolls wrap around the front of the sax to play 16 notes through the 16 slotted openings. Put the music roll on, turn the crank, and breathe. The sax plays 16-note perforated music rolls with accompanying chords. Now, wait. Were you able to find what this sounds like? I did not run across a recording of it, but uh, I think we can all kind of imagine a – mechanical toy saxophone sound Uh probably more in keeping with the sort of toy saxophones that uh, a child might uh, possess today
1: you know if only this like so imagine the the old west saloon where you walk in and the player piano is going Mm -hmm. or wait is that actually a thing it's usually actually there's a human at the piano in the saloon isn't there
0: Well, unless there's a player piano in there. Oh, okay.
1: Well, I'm just saying maybe that should have been replaced by a player – like an automatic saxophone.
0: We'll have to come back to the player piano. I think there's a whole – I mean we could do a whole episode on the pianos as well.
1: Imagine automatic saxophone playing in the background in the confrontation scene at the end of Unforgiven.
0: (laughs) Now of course today we also have digital saxophones such as uh, one model I was looking at the Roland AE-10G digital saxophone which actually utilizes both accurate fingering and a breath sensor. Um uh, this in a it, so, so the the idea here is you, you you get this this instrument and you can play the saxophone with headphones on mm-hmm. uh, uh, that are in you know that are hooked up to the instrument itself. Oh, I see. Uh so it it, it looks it looks like a, a rather Interesting piece of technology. And this is not a toy. This is a high-priced item I'm talking about. Uh, but you can find plenty of videos of people uh, demonstrating them uh-huh. uh, online. And, of course, this is in addition to synthetic sax sounds that one might produce via a synthesizer.
1: Now, we're talking about like high-tech upgrades to the saxophone. But th- it goes in the other direction too, doesn't it?
0: Oh, yeah. Now, remember yeah, remember the fact that sax's original saxophone wasn't brass but wood. Mm-hmm. Well, you find uh, that bamboo variations of the saxophone have popped up in parts of the world where the sax's influence was felt, but materials or funds prevented everyone from from grabbing a horn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's not just saxophone. You also find, uh, um, you know, wooden tubas, wooden trumpets, et cetera. Uh, and there are several examples of, of this at the, the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix. Now, it's easy to think of these as just mere, um, you know— um, uh, crude replicas mm-hmm. of of the saxophone itself, or whatever horn they're um, they're they're modeled on, but there's actually one called the the Maui uh, Zafun. Uh, that has actually picked up quite a following all its own. And uh, and I actually looked up some videos of individuals playing this, and it can sound quite good in proper hands. Uh, it's essentially just a small wooden saxophone. It doesn't quite look like a saxophone. It kind mm-hmm. of looks more like a clarinet, uh, but it has kind of a saxophone sound to it, at least uh, when uh, the individuals uh, 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 testing it out were playing it.
1: You know, one of the things we've talked about sometime, a few times on Stuff to Blow Your Mind is... Um, the idea of uh, uh, sort of like expanding our cell our self image of the schema of the body to include tools that mm-hmm. we use a lot and really start to incorporate into the self. So, like if you you use a tool enough, you find ways to start to think of it almost as a part of your own body. You think about it the same way you would think of your hands or your feet. And uh, yeah, I wonder if the same thing happens with people who use musical instruments enough.
0: I would imagine so, yeah. I uh, You know, I remember hearing um, uh, like an interview with – who was it? Doc Severson. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was on the, the, the Tonight Show back in the day. And he was talking about like just how – you know, a professional trumpeteer, like how often they practice. And it's like there's an intimacy with it that – that only they are privy to, like talking about like if they skip, uh, you know, if they skip a practice, uh, they they skip a day of playing it. Uh, you get into the zone where no one else can notice that you haven't practiced, but you notice it. Like there's a, a, a you know, it's just part of the intimacy with the tool. Um, and then when you get into the like the neurological zone too, it's it's interesting to sort of tease apart like where, you know, where, where does the instrumentation really take place in the brain? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a there was a fascinating uh, study that came out in 2017 concerning a music teacher by the name of Dan Fabio, who had uh, a brain tumor removed from part of the brain associated with music. Hmm. And the physicians uh, involved here, they actually had him play his saxophone during part of the procedure. How could you do that? Well, it was apparently quite challenging for two main reasons. So first of all, he was on his side during the procedure. Mm -hmm. And then also deep breathing, as is typical for many uh, sax numbers, they were concerned that it might cause his exposed brain to essentially protrude from his skull. What? which is alone what? yeah <laughs> that that alone i was is a reason I just had to include this. The idea uh, of someone potentially it this didn't happen, but potentially pl- like playing their saxophone so passionately that their brain pops out of their skull.
1: that, um, that is metal. That is so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the people in Cannibal Corpse now are like, well, I want my brain to pop out of my skull.
0: Well, you know, I was thinking of, along these lines and I was like, why don't we hear saxophones in metal? The thing is, now you do hear saxophone and there are a lot of metal acts out there, especially uh-huh. experimental metal acts that are utilizing the saxophone. There's a band for everything now. If yeah. you can think it up, there's a band that does it. Somebody's done it. Anyway, they did not want his brain to... Protrude from his skull uh, any more than it you know was during the but procedure. He was awake. Yeah, so uh, he actually worked <laughs> with his surgeon though prior to the uh, uh, to the to the procedure, and they selected a Korean folk song for him to play that would only require shallow breaths, so he wouldn't have to like really you know uh, belt it mm-hmm. uh, in there. Uh, and he would also, in addition to uh, using the saxophone, he would also hum and repeat notes during the procedure. Hmm. So it wasn't just the saxophone. Now, once the tumor was removed, um, the surgeons brought over the sax. He performed flawlessly and uh, he completely recovered and returned to teaching uh, music within a few months. And this procedure has apparently helped define the relation between the different parts of the brain that are responsible for music uh, and language processing. So, uh, yeah, I just had to include an anecdote about uh, neuroscience and the saxophone. Now, as we close out here, it's probably time in the episode that we discuss Kenny G.
1: Does Kenny G? I'm I'm trying to picture him. Does he look a little bit like Weird Al?
0: Yeah, I mean a little bit. I think maybe. Does he have like Weird Al type hair? Uh, he does or did. Yes. Okay. He's notable here, however, because at least for a while he had the world record for the longest note, um, uh, recorded using the saxophone. <laughs> so uh, this do this. Take, so how long did it go? Like three minutes? <laughs> well, in 1997. Uh, Kenny G apparently set the Guinness World Record when he held his note, an E-flat, for 45 minutes and 47 seconds on his saxophone. Wait a second. How do you you, do that? Well, via something that's known as circular breathing. Hmm. So this is a method employed by players of various wood instruments, uh, saxophone included, to sustain a continuous tone for a long, long time. So they simply store air in their cheeks and then slowly release it while still breathing at the same time. And it's not it's not easy, and it apparently um, hurts uh, the player's lungs and lips to do this, uh, but uh, it's the technique that is employed when you see these like crazy world records for sustained notes with woodwinds. So for a while, this held the record. And then uh, February 2000, uh, Van Birchfield set a new Guinness World Record holding one continuous note for 47 minutes, 6 seconds, and then Mark Atkins played the Didgeridoo Concerto in 1994 for over 50 minutes continuously, what? and finally in May 2017, a Nigerian saxophonist uh, Femi Kuti uh, broke Mark Atkins' record by playing a single note for 51 minutes and 38 seconds. So that's uh, so. Who's going to be the first to break an hour? Who I don't know. Let's see, and this I, this is of 2017, uh, based on some of the the research that Scott Benjamin uh, uh, carried out for us here. So. I think this is the, the current, uh, this is the current data, but by the time this, this episode is published, who knows? There could be a new longest note out there, a new uh, record-breaking saxophonist changing uh, our understanding of just how long a note can be sustained. Thinking about this hurts me) <laughs> All right, so there you have it. We we kind of got into the weeds a little bit here at the end. But uh but but the saxophone, it's uh, again it an instrument I felt like we had to cover because it has uh, you know a definite inventor. Mm-hmm. Um it's a it's it's a it's a recent invention and yet one that has just become such a part of the modern world, the modern musical world, you know, certainly in the west, that it's difficult to imagine its absence.
1: Yeah. And uh, and just because it has such a uh, uh, contentious history, you would yeah. not have expected such a thing for a musical instrument.
0: Yeah, it seems like this would be uh, this would surely be the product of polite society, but it was <laughs> obviously anything but. Now, like I said, we'd love to cover more Musical inventions in the future, more bits of musical technology, and we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Uh, you know, what would you like us to cover? Do you want Do you want us to go uh, in the direction of more ancient musical instruments? Do you want us to go with uh, with other more modern creations like the theremin that we mentioned? Uh, we're we're really open for anything. I mean, that's the beauty of the show.
1: Oh, that might be a fun one. One of the few inventions I can really justify a link to a discussion of Ed Wood.
0: <laughs> it's true. Um, and hey, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, head on over to inventionpod.com. That's the homepage. For this uh, show, but you can also find just find the show anywhere you get your podcasts. If you're going using the what the iHeartRadio app, you can do it that way. You can get it with Apple podcast, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. We're out there. Look for invention. Uh, that's where we are. Big thanks to Scott Benjamin for research assistance on this episode
1: and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com.